As 2021 gets underway, the pandemic feels like it's in a new phase. Are we headed in the right direction? And is there light at the end of this dark tunnel we still find ourselves in? Let's talk all about it right here on this special bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with others. I'm now publishing these special COVID-19 pandemic updates at the end of each month. These episodes are always free of corporate sponsorship. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. And remember, the show notes for this episode can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-20. Now, as a disclaimer, everything I share in these episodes about the pandemic reference the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions from yours truly. Remember, this situation is changing by the moment, and anything I share may have changed by the time this episode publishes. And please note that anything shared in the course of these podcast episodes is not intended for diagnosis or treatment. So please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local department of health, or any other evidence-based resource you trust. And if you hear or read something I've shared that appears to be erroneous, please email me at keith at nursekeith.com with evidence or data to back that up so that I can share a public correction. Thanks for understanding, stay safe, and keep informed. So yes, here we are at the end of January 2021. I believe the first case of COVID-19 emerged in the United States in January of 2020, if I'm not mistaken. So we are just about one year into this, and we are not on our way out just yet, though there are some promising signs out there glimmering on the horizon. Now let's break down a little morbidity and mortality. Let's get that out of the way at the beginning of this episode. So as of this recording, the United States now has over 425,000 deaths and more than 25.4 million known cases. Meanwhile, around the world, we've now recorded 100 million known cases of COVID-19 and more than 2.14 million deaths. However, we have to bear in mind when we hear these global numbers that due to very low testing capacity in many, many countries, especially low-income countries, 100 million is likely a vast undercount of the true cases that we've had over the last 12 months. Now, Overall, we're still seeing an average of 500,000 new cases per day being reported worldwide. That is not a great number that we want to hear, but it is the reality at this moment. And, you know, I mentioned that the U.S. has over 425,000 deaths and 25.4 million cases. And compared to the cases and deaths around the world, what's wrong with this picture? 
Here in the United States, where I happen to live, and many of my listeners live, we have to recall that the United States is 4% of the global population, yet we have more than 20% of the world's infections and more than 20% of the world's deaths. What does this say about our pandemic response one year in to this global crisis? So from my perspective, it's now clear to those of us with eyes and ears that the Trump administration fumbled COVID-19 response in what I see as absolutely egregious ways. And now that the Biden administration is finally in place, we're starting to see a plan come together. We're seeing that the Trump administration didn't really have much of a plan to pass off to the Biden administration. And lo and behold, the Biden administration is actually now basing their decisions on pandemic response on science, not the convenient manipulation of non-facts and non-truths to please a leader more interested in his own political and business needs rather than the public health of a suffering country. Joe Biden has inherited an absolute mess that is absolutely clear from testing and contact tracing to supply chain issues and the vaccine rollout. And there's a lot to be done in order to set this very slow moving ship on the right path. The WHO, which we, the United States, just happily rejoined, thanks to President Biden's prudent foreign policy uh, notions. The WHO has published an interim report just this past week detailing the worldwide failure in responding to the pandemic from the start, and the WHO has criticism for everyone, including itself. So I'd like to read that report. I've yet to see it. It's an interim report, but I think there's a lot for us, obviously, to learn from what they've gleaned looking over the data from the last 12 months. So currently. We have the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines circulating, being distributed around the world in um, very hodgepodge fashion. And we're seeing massive delays in vaccine rollout across the country. And the frustrating thing is that with the mess that's been inherited now by the Biden administration, the plans being initiated by the Biden-Harris administration and the states following their lead is leading to and showing us bottlenecks of vaccine supplies. And that's really hurting us just when we need these vaccines getting into arms right now. So mass vaccination sites have been pulled together in stadiums and other large, medium-sized and small venues all over the country. And we're currently seeing, unfortunately, reports of tens of thousands of vaccination appointments being canceled or postponed because they have the personnel, they have the equipment, they have the vaccination sites, but guess what? Many of these sites don't have enough vaccine or they're running out of vaccine. So the frustration we're hearing around the country from citizens and healthcare providers and people in public office is monumental. And, you know, sadly, it's going to result in more infections and more deaths, even though this could have been largely avoided if we had a centralized effective response over the last year prior to the transfer of power that just happened on January 20th. So I just read in the New York Times today 
that the Biden administration is nearing a deal with Pfizer and Moderna for 200 million more doses by the end of summer. And this is the end of January. So we're talking about the end of summer. That's August or September. And that obviously is not going to speed up vaccinations right now. This would raise the total United States vaccine order from both companies from 400 million to 600 million and 600 being enough for 300 million people. And you may have heard tell that President Biden wants to bring the Defense Production Act online. That's back from World War II, I guess, where the federal government can basically command private businesses and factories and manufacturing to change what they're doing to help in a crisis. So that could be enacted to boost production, and that would give us a significant boost in production, but apparently not until sometime in April, because there'd have to be a ramp-up time between now and then. So that gives us a three-month window here where production is not necessarily going to be changing anytime soon. And I recently read that Pfizer is going to be temporarily shutting down its main manufacturing plant in Belgium due to um, retrofitting they have to do, I think, in order to boost their production there. So there's a lot of uh, rancor in the European Union right now about that. President Biden has stated that weekly deliveries of vaccine are going to increase by 1.4 million doses per week as of the beginning of February. So that's a little bit of a boost, but obviously not enough where many of us are concerned. Speaking of vaccines, on January 25th, 2021, I was listening to Dr. Sanjay Gupta's Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction CNN podcast, which I highly recommend and which comes out every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday morning. And you can get a good 15, 16-minute uh rundown on what's going on. He interviews some of the top people in the world, including uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci on a regular basis. And on that January 25th episode, which I'll try to remember to post in the show notes, you can email me and complain if I don't. They're talking about this promising Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is showing good phase two clinical data and we're poised to hear their phase three clinical data within the next few weeks at most. So hopefully by Valentine's Day, we're gonna have the phase three data from Johnson & Johnson. This vaccine, which is really lovely part about it, it doesn't require storage in the freezer, so it doesn't need a deep freeze. And that would make distribution and logistical issues much less daunting, especially in developing countries where refrigeration and dry ice and deep freeze is not always possible. And it's also a one-dose regimen. And the efficacy and safety of that one-dose regimen so far from phase two data is looking pretty darn good. And they're actually going to be releasing data on a two-dose regimen as well because they're testing one-dose and two-dose. Though so far, it looks pretty decent in terms of a one-dose regimen. So I'll have a link to Sanjay Gupta and also to a New York Times article about that Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. 
And if you want to ask Nurse Keith, well, what is it about this vaccine? Why is it different from the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccines? Well, the researchers from Johnson & Johnson, what they did is they added the gene for the coronavirus spike protein to another virus called adenovirus 26. And if you've heard of adenoviruses before, which you probably have, those are common viruses that usually cause colds and flu-like symptoms. And they used a modified adenovirus that can enter cells, human cells, once injected, but can't replicate inside the human cells, so can't actually cause illness. These adenobased viruses for COVID-19 are more, quote-unquote, rugged than the messenger RNA vaccines from Pfizer and BioNTech. DNA isn't as fragile as messenger RNA. And the adenovirus has this really tough coat of protein that protects the genetic material inside. So that means Johnson & Johnson's vaccine can be refrigerated up to three months at 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, which is two to eight degrees Celsius. So that is a very good thing in terms of its stability and the ability to um, ship it and store it. So after this Johnson & Johnson adenovirus vaccine is injected into your arm, the adenovirus basically bumps into your cells. It latches onto proteins on their surface. Your cell engulfs this adenovirus in a bubble and pulls it inside. And once it's inside, that adenovirus escapes from the bubble. And remember I told you that this adenovirus is attenuated. It can't make you sick. And it travels into the nucleus where you know your DNA is stored. And it's not going to alter your DNA. It's not going to do anything awful to you. The adenovirus pushes its DNA into the nucleus. And it's engineered so it can't make copies of itself. But the gene for the coronavirus spike protein can be read by the cell and copied into a molecule called, guess what, messenger RNA. So the messenger RNA then leaves the nucleus, the cell's molecules read the sequence of that messenger RNA, they build little pieces of spike protein that stud the surface of your cells, and that alerts your immune system, which is very much like what happens with the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccines. So anyway, that's a little breakdown of the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus-based vaccine, which is quite different from Pfizer and BioNTech's messenger RNA vaccine. So the president, meanwhile, getting back to vaccine distribution, he's pushing for a million shots per day for his first 100 days in office, but many people are calling for a bolder goal of maybe 2 million shots per day. And and we just have to sit tight and wait to see if we can get that many doses into people's arms over the long term to reach that crucial herd immunity. Now, now that we've talked about morbidity and mortality, we've talked about the response and vaccinations, and we've talked about the new Johnson Johnson vaccine, let's talk about the variants, the mutations that are circulating around the world now. Now, mutations are a big worry, and I was talking about the potential for these way back in the spring of 2020, based on my experience working in the world of HIV and AIDS back in the day, and all the mutations we were fighting back then with 
phenotyping and genotyping patients' blood samples. So you've probably all heard about the British variant, the B117 variant that's come out of England, and it's been shown to cause a great deal more transmissibility of the virus. And that's definitely had a lot of us worried. And that variant is now here in the US in a number of states. And if they say it's in 10 states, I always assume it's probably at least double that number of states. Um, its potential for increased lethalness is still not ironclad. We're not 100% sure, but Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, recently hinted in the media that it might be more deadly. That has people panicked, but we truly don't know yet. We don't know the deadliness of that variant, but it is definitely cause for concern because if the variant makes the virus more transmissible, just by nature of that fact alone, it causes more people to get infected and thus leads to more death because the more infections, the more deaths. Now, we also have the Brazilian variant, which was just found the other day in the first patient in the U.S. that has been identified in Minnesota in the St. Paul area. And that person traveled to Brazil. This variant is known as B1128 or P1, I believe, and it shares a lot of mutations with a variant that's also been found in South Africa. We're trying to keep these variants out of the United States. It's virtually impossible, even if we have a travel ban against people coming in from South Africa or non-U.S. citizens coming in, at least, and from Brazil. The Brazilian one is here. We can probably assume the South African one will be here any day or is already here. Both of these also seem to make the virus much more transmissible. I haven't seen anything definitive again about these two in terms of lethalness, but we're just going to have to wait and see. But we have to remain vigilant now, folks, because these variants, even if they're not more lethal, they are causing increased transmissibility, and that is an issue in and of itself, as I mentioned. Pfizer and Moderna think that their vaccines are going to be sufficiently protective against all of these variants, despite their admission that the efficacy may be somewhat compromised by a certain percentage. Dr. Fauci has vouched for that too. He does feel that they'll still be effective, and he said that it's not that hard to... Um, do a little alteration to the recipe to make them even more effective against these variants. But then my question is, what do we do with all the doses that are already being distributed that have not been altered to cover the variants? Stay tuned for more on that. So here in the US, we're kind of flying blind right now as we don't yet have a large scale nationwide system for checking virus genomes for new mutations. Instead, it's like I read in the New York Times, this patchwork of academic state and commercial labs are doing what they can as bulwarks against the new mutants entering the population. But without a centralized nationwide genomic checking system, this is definitely a crapshoot for us. And that certainly has to change. So now moving on to restrictions, um, California, especially Southern California, has been on fire with infections and deaths with just recently reports that one out of three Angelinos were potentially infected in the previous weeks. 
out there in Los Angeles. And ICUs and ERs have been overflowing. Patients have been waiting in ambulances out in the field. Some ambulances are running out of portable oxygen because the state stores of oxygen were on the wane. Things are easing up in California at the moment. There's still quite a number of new cases, quite a number of deaths every day, but some restrictions are being lifted. Some people feel that it's happening a little too quickly, but the powers that be are saying that because of citizen vigilance, the reward is that some outdoor dining and other activities are now going to be allowed again. That makes me really nervous. But as long as the numbers keep heading in the right direction in LA and New York and other places, then I guess we're going to see some opening up and we're just going to have to see what happens. So friends, we have countless nurses and healthcare professionals, maybe you're one of them, saying publicly and privately that they're not going to agree to be vaccinated because they don't trust the vaccines and they don't trust the government. Meanwhile, we have these surges in states around the country and mounting cases and deaths around the world and many more months of winter and early spring to get through and being cloistered indoors in isolation, especially here, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere where it's winter. And, you know, I'm not quite sure what to tell you if you're against getting vaccinated or you're, you're urging people not to get vaccinated. If you could tell me another way out of this particular situation, I'd love to hear it. I don't quite know what that would be. If you have some ideas, share them with me, shoot me an email. But other than mass vaccination campaigns and continuing our vigilance like we are now with social distancing and masking and hand washing and isolating the sick and opening up our economy incredibly slowly based on the numbers, real numbers, I don't really know, my friends. And my question for you is, how are you getting through this? How are you and your loved ones getting through it? How are your kids? Are they back in school? Are they um, still doing school from home? And if they are going to school, do you feel like it's safe? Is it being done well? I have some young friends who are at college right now and seems like their schools have it pretty buttoned down. And I have some young friends here in Santa Fe who are going to school in person now. And I just want to know how you're taking care of yourself. And if you need some advice or you just want to blow off some steam, you can email me at keith at nursekeith.com. Just tell me what's on your mind. Tell me ways you're taking care of yourself. Tell me ways that you need advice about how to care for yourself. And whether you're frontline and you're in the COVID unit or you're working telehealth from home or you're a self-employed entrepreneur working from home like me or you're in a clinic or a school or a nursing home. You know, the pandemic's having an effect on all of us and our loved ones and our families and our friends and our neighbors and our communities and, and our elected officials. And I want to know your strategies for survival. And, you know, I live alone. And it's definitely not been easy. And I want to know how you're surviving because maybe you'll have some ideas for me because I'm having a hard time myself and we all need to share what's going on with us so that we can support one another. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember, 
At the end of each month, we'll have these new episodes. This is nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-20 if you want to see any of the links from the data and resources I shared in the course of this episode. I hope you feel informed and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your community. The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com, one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative, high-quality podcasts anywhere, taking on the tough topics in health and care with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. You can find Dr. Sanjay Gupta's podcast that I mentioned earlier, the Mayo Clinic, the New England Journal of Medicine, Penn Nursing, and so many more excellent podcasts. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappies-Beeson is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Thank you to Rob and Mark for helping me spread the word and keeping you informed via our many online platforms. Stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse and healthcare professional who does the right thing in the face of the pandemic. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful, cold, and snowy Santa Fe, New Mexico.